The Chase Down Podcast presents A City of Champions, a seven-part series chronicling the Cavs' 2016 NBA championship. With help from fans who cheered against us, reporters who covered it, and the players who watched it, we'll take you game by game through the most improbable 3-1 comeback in championship history. Be sure to subscribe to the Chase Down Podcast to relive the greatest series we've seen in our lifetimes. One dribble steps back, puts up a three, won't go, rebound tip taken by Spades, final second, it's over, it's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. The series begins Thursday, April 9th. Blue Wire. Three on the way. Yes. Paul George nails it. For the win. Welcome back to Dunks and Discourse Episode 3. We are live now, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast, hit us up. Uh, last week we talked about Tiger King, we talked about the five games that you want to watch on a desert island if you could only ever watch five NBA games again. We talked a little bit more about the NBA Hall of Fame. This week we are going to talk about the excellent reporting at The Athletic on the situation with Utah Jazz, specifically with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. Um, that's from Sham Sharania, Sam Amick, and Tony Jones. Great job from them. Huge article. Going to really get into that. I think that was definitely the biggest news we've had in a while. And then we are going to rank some Quentin Tarantino flicks. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jabari Davis. Jabari, how you doing, brother? Not bad at all. How about yourself today? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Um, the the weekend was a bit of a of a slog as the days tend to be at this point, but uh, I'm feeling good on this Monday morning. I've got the uh, collared shirt on in the bedroom office. I've got my coffee. I'm feeling like a professional, whether that's true or not. Uh, I'll let the listeners judge that up. Yeah, I mean it, it's cliche, but you know to state at this point. But I was going to say, what is a weekend like? All of these days legitimately run into the next for me. Oh, I mean totally, and it and it's funny like the moods just go with it you know like one moment you're feeling nice the next moment you're not feeling nice and that is how uh this era is gonna go i guess but um on to the show so let's talk let's talk this article because i think that is the the pressing news and it's nice and i i mean this it is nice even though i'm frustrated with this article and a lot of the reaction um i'm pretty thrilled to have some real news to talk about so just like what's your initial thoughts just your surface thoughts on this whole uh all these shenanigans in Utah. Yeah, the very first thing, and and you know, it, uh, I, I agree fully with you. This was a really done, you know, really well done article. You know, you know, props to those guys, especially my guy Tony out there in Utah. Uh, but you know, my first thought was, what's the, you know, why now? What's the relevance of this information being leaked or floated at this exact moment? Um, you know, I've got some theories that you know, which we'll get into here in a bit. But that was my main takeaway from this. You know, who actually will benefit from this information being leaked or put out there, or however, however it was disseminated, who actually benefits from this at this time? So I'm just gonna just quickly, if you haven't read this article, I mean, go do it. It, it does do a really nice breakdown of how did we go from, hey, Corona is an issue and COVID-19 is an issue to like the NBA is closing down shop immediately. And it does a really good job of kind of like time stamping as things progressed in the illness, um, share some light. And then it gets to like Gobert and Mitchell about halfway through the article. And there's really one quote um, 
from an anonymous source that says things that, you know, this might not be salvageable. But like the remainder of this article isn't so much about Mitchell and Gobert. And I, I think people really ran. They took that quote, as they often do. And um, that's what got aggregated. And that's what, you know, formed the news cycle. But I, I did not feel like the majority of this article is about Mitchell and Gobert hating each other for life. And this is an unfixable, unsalvageable, you know, it doesn't appear salvageable, one source with knowledge of the situation said. And then it's immediately followed up from a quote uh, from Joe Ingle saying, I'm confident our team is going to be totally fine. And yes, that's that's team jargon, but it's not like an indictment of tons and tons of sources saying this is broken. Yeah, look, for me, of course, that's the, you know, that's the quote that everybody aggregated and that's a quote that everybody fixated on. You know, you, you know and I know we don't have any information. We don't have any you know, information. We don't have any sports going on right now. We don't have any you know, real you know, basketball action outside of that crazy and ridiculous horse competition that they, I guess that's what they're calling it you know, from the other day. Uh, so folks are going to latch on to things of this nature. But to me, now, the one thing I will say is this. I think... I think it's being overblown in terms of the players. I do. Uh, in, in in fact, I think they, I think the beat writer's name is what is it, Eric Walden or Eric Walder? I think he even disputed that and said like, "Hey, look, they've already you know they've already kind of patched things up." But the one thing I will say, and this was kind of what I was alluding to, like in the opener, is who does this benefit? You know, who who would this information actually benefit? Now, Jazz fans are going to be upset by this because I'm, I'm just speculating. And, you know, keep in mind, it's just speculation. But any time I hear of, you know, things being dropped in, you know, to the media and like, you know, oh, this play, you know, this franchise player, you know, quote unquote, may not, you know, may not want to play with this other franchise player. It makes me wonder whether it's, uh, you know, the player agent putting it out there, the players themselves, which is actually a lot more rare than you would, you know, than you would, than you might anticipate, or sometimes even the organization. So when I look down the road, I look at the, I, I wonder again, just a wondering, is there at least a possibility that this is the org somehow laying a bit of the, you know, the groundwork in order to avoid maxing Gobert out just ahead of having to do the same thing for, you know, from you know, Donovan Mitchell in a couple, you know, a couple years down the line. Now, Bear with me. Jazz fans are going to be upset. They're going to say, oh, you're just you're just being a hater. You're trying to you're just trying to dunk on us while we're down. I promise you that's not the case. I would love to see these two players stick together and continue to compete and see and see where we could go. You know, kind of uh, yeah, get get your Darren Williams and uh, and Carlos Boozer fix that you never quite got, you know, from you know, from a few years back. But if you're, you know, you're, for those folks out there, if anybody you know, is naive enough to think that there's never a case where an organization looks down the line and just looks at the, you know, the bare you know, uh, finances of it and makes considerations like this, then, you, like I said, you're being a bit naive. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of almost thinking it's the other way. I'm thinking if I'm going to go the conspiracy theory route, who's to say this isn't a Donovan Mitchell source who is framing the discussion? It, it hurts the brand if you you, you don't want to do Utah like Gordon Hayward do, did Utah. You don't want to be the star who bounces and loses the small market affection and loses that, that brand power. Now, if you're Donovan Mitchell and you're from New York and your family's in New York and you're born in New York and you're not a big fan of Utah and you're already planning, how the heck can I get out of Utah? Wouldn't it be just convenient if you already had a big French villain um, that you kind of blame the situation on so that if you did leave, you know, people could point at him and say it was his fault rather than I just wanted to get the heck out of here. I think that's an excellent point. Like, you know, to, you know, to, to your point, 
I'm not guaranteeing that it's the organization or I'm not even saying that it can't be a little bit of both. You're exactly right. When it comes to these players and their and their agents, they know that they can't just up and leave. Like they, they at least have to make it appear as though they were fighting all the way till the end. You know, doing giving everything that they could to the market. You know, you know, putting it really out there on the line for the organization. All of that good stuff. And if ultimately, like you mentioned, if you can have a whether it's a French villain or you know any other you know uh, villainous figure uh, to kind of uh, push the blame towards. I wouldn't hold it. I wouldn't hold it past any, especially you know, no agency. Uh, I wouldn't hold it past any agency to do that. But I'm I'm going to walk this back a little bit because conspiracy theories aside, I I, I don't think this is unfixable. Like it, it just it just seems like an, a bit of overkill, and I I can understand totally being upset. But one of the most important details, um, and to clarify, upset from Mitchell's perspective, one of the most important details in that story is that they cannot confirm. Who had the virus first, Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell? We don't even know that Gobert gave it to Mitchell and not the other way around. It's also reported in that article that they were hanging out, that they were sitting together, which is a conscious choice from both parties, which doesn't sound like something people would do if they hated each other, you know? And I think, one, people are bored. I think NBA fans in general are trained and invested in drama taking hold at all times. So the second there's a crack or an opening, people are going to run with it because that's what they want to talk about. We've also had, you know, Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and LeBron James in the last couple of years, and people have just kind of come to expect that stars break up. Even to a lesser extent, there was the LaMarcus Aldridge, Damian Lillard situation a few years ago. But I, I just I just don't think about it. And, and one thing I kind of wanted to frame in this article before we talked about some of those other breakups in comparison is sort of the lack of perspective in this article, um, we are we are basketball fans, but we are also you know people living in a tough time, and and the the lack of perspective or the amount of privilege in this article that's used sort of not by the writers, but just sort of like to frame the minds of, of where these guys are. At. There was a basically a twelve hour window following the Oklahoma City game where the Jazz were stuck in the locker room. Over that time. You know, they had a paid professional staff make calls on their behalf to find them flights home. Um, in Donovan Mitchell's case, you know, private flight to New York. Uh, Chris Paul had wine and beer delivered uh, to, to the locker room for them to hang out. So you're hanging out in a locker room with your teammates, drinking beer and wine. You're taking a little bit longer to fly home, but you're having people make those calls. You're not worried about losing your job. You have the best medical care available to you. Those doctors' checkups are all set up for you. Flights are all set up for you. You're not worried about you know who you're going to be stuck with, where you're going to be stuck with. I just think you know in in a, in a situation that in in the situation that we're in, where we have senior homes all over the world, where like half of the the senior homes getting wiped out, like sixty people are dying in a day, sixteen people are dying in a day. You know, uh, there, there's people who can't keep the lights on, can't buy food, don't know how they're going to survive another month with the quarantine situation. It, it just, there's a quote in there from, from Quinn Snyder talking about, I felt like I was in the G League because it was taking so long to get flights figured out and I had to eat, you know, corner store pizza or something. And I just couldn't help but feel like this is kind of a gross portrayal of real struggle when there's so much real struggle in the world. And there was some pushback on me for that but did you did you get that vibe at all i got a little bit of it and, and but but he, here's where i sit with it uh 
this is an entirely new ball game for all of us. You know, all of us, whether it's the two of us sitting in our you know apartments or homes or whatever, or you know, all the way to the end of the you know, other end of the scale, whether you know a, a, a rich and famous athlete or entitled coach or you know general manager or whatever the case may be, all of this is new. Uh, if we're being honest about this, outside of a very select you know few. Yeah, none of us were really taking all of this anywhere near as seriously as it probably should, or no, as it definitely should have been taken, uh, and you know, which is why down here in the states, you know, we're behind the curve. You know, we're behind the eight ball a bit, you know, a bit, you know specifically because of that. Um, now, of course, you know, acknowledging, the, of course, there were healthcare professionals, doctors, and scientists fully aware of the potential dangers, potential and likely dangers. But by and large, none of us, you know, the, of the general population, you know, none of us knew how serious it would be. So I hear what you're saying in terms of. Uh, of the of it kind of stinking of privilege, um, but you know much like uh, you know much like how you know one quote can be aggregated in order to make it sound a certain way. Sometimes when you when you have a you know a, a broad swooping article of this nature, um, a quote of that you know it, it can kind of be it can kind of be placed out of context. And what I and I'm not saying by the writers, I'm saying it can come across as out of context because it was probably a part of a longer conversation. But the whole the whole article kind of sets the stage for this feud, right? I mean, there's a lot going on, but like they were under all the stress and like look at all these things that were caused and Gobert is an idiot. And and I'm gonna say a couple things here. One, to be very clear, it was a very stupid joke. Gobert was an idiot for doing that. But here's number two. Here's here's the extremely hot take that I don't think's hot at all. Gobert did more for awareness and action on COVID-19 than the president of the United States. It, 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 if Rudy go, if this does not happen, America was just, you know, prancing along. Rudy Gobert being an idiot also woke a lot of people up, which is kind of what you were saying. And I'm not saying he's a hero for it. He's not, he was an idiot. He shouldn't have done that. I'm just saying the, the far, the, what actually happened is Donovan Mitchell was Delayed a few hours. He drank some free beer in a locker room. He was a little stressed out about a virus that he might have given to Gobert, not the other way around. He was flown on a private plane to his house in New York to li- to be with family. He recovered. He didn't have to worry about money. He didn't have to worry about flights. He didn't have to worry about health care. All in all, the damage there is not extensive. And I'm just, I'm not buying that as the, the sword that slayed this relationship. So I'm glad that you cleaned it up a bit because I was like, wait, is he going to put me, he's going to back me into the corner where I have to, make it sound as though I'm defending uh, the president in chief? Because, like, really, no, no. But you're right. Yeah, Yes, his acts probably did more than anyone else, you know, it, it, specifically at that time, uh, that was calling shots out here. So, yeah, it, but, you, but you're right. He's not a hero. It's just a matter of, you know, when you do something stupid sometimes, it, you, it, it allows someone to realize, oh, hey, wait a second, what's going on over there? Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes you, you have to be a donkey to set the fire, but... He did, he did set the fire, right? Like, that did really change how everyone viewed it. And then following this, Tom Hanks. I would say Tom Hanks and Rudy Gobert caused more people to take uh, corona seriously in North America than any world leader. So, um, uh, well, I will just say this. I do think it's kind of telling. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, drop a pin here or, excuse me, drop, you know, drop a grenade here. But I think it's kind of telling that. We weren't willing to listen to the doctors and medical professionals, but we were willing to listen to, oh, wait a second, the NBA's gone? Wait a second, your professional sports are gone? Wait a second, Tom Hanks? <laughs> you know, like, it, it's interesting to me when you look at it from the outside, you know, kind of, you know, step aside and look and look back at it and like, realize, yeah, we weren't listening to the, you know, foremost experts, but we are willing to listen to Tom Hanks. 
Yeah, and I mean, I'm not gonna. We're not. We're not the podcast to diagnose exactly um, what that means about society. That we are not in a state of mind to trust the experts, rather than to just panic when an athlete or a celebrity with all of the means and money and is going to be fine in the situation is get sick. But uh, you know that is what happened. So let's, let's let's take this another way. If this plays out in a, if this plays out how NBA Twitter would like it to play out. <laughs> which which is they hate each other and it's it's unfixable it's unsalvageable as mentioned in the article um let, let's look back at a couple of the other breakups you know specifically let's look at Kyrie and LeBron Kyrie and LeBron what what do you think was the moment from everything you've read that broke Kyrie and LeBron it really seemed like a death by a thousand cuts but Probably the moment when I, I don't even remember which reporter it was when they said uh, when they asked Kyrie, you know, like, like essentially saying like, you know, is LeBron a father figure? Yeah, one hundred percent. Because that 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 the look in Kyrie's eyes, to be honest with you, I completely understood. Had it been phrased differently, yes, could could Kyrie have handled it, you know, professionally and just been like, you know, let it roll off his back? Yes, of course he could have. But Kyrie's a, a a human being and you know has you know real human being emotions and whatnot. And you know some you know some might say you know some weird ones as well. But the truth of the matter is, no grown man, regardless of whether he's playing with the greatest player of all time or one of the greatest players of all time, no grown man wants to be asked, hey, is a guy that's four years older than you and i know it might be a little bit more but there's a guy that's four years older than you is he being a good dad for you <laughs> yeah and i'm it was that moment i i can't i'm sure there's lots of other things going on and and there were and there was good reporting at the time and there was like the practice incident and there was like the personnel shuffles and the franchise catering more to lebron and all of that stuff but that that did feel like the moment this doesn't feel to me like that moment for utah no, and and you know what's funny is like in the rundown, I you know, of course you know, and I and I'm sure we're gonna get into some of them. I was looking at some of the other breakdown compare, you know, breakup comparisons, and I'm like, no, it's not that. No, it's not that. It doesn't compare to an overwhelming majority of these. And and sometimes like you know, I, I'm a pretty big history buff. I read basketball stuff all the time. I routinely go back and read articles from years past because I get a kick out of you know what were people thinking at the time with Russ and KD. People wanted there to be something wrong with Russ and KD, and it was clear that they didn't have the best on-court chemistry, for sure. But did we know that KD didn't like Russ, and Russ didn't like... Did we know that the relationship was not great, that it's that was near broken before he made the free agency decision? I'm going to be honest with you. I think those guys you know, liked each other, and I think they still love one another. I just think that you know, Kevin Durant got to a point where... One, we've seen that he's an impressionable individual, and I rec- I recognize that somebody would hear, you know, KD might hear that and say like, "What do you mean I'm impressionable, dog? You had a burner account, and you still have burner accounts, and you still, you know, focus on the, you still focus on social media a, a great deal more than uh, I at least think that I would if I were in your position." So that's what I mean by that. Uh, I think honestly, you know, KD you got for- not forced. Uh, got bullied essentially, allowed himself to get bullied into th- saying, "Oh well, you know that's an all-time, you know that that's a great team over there, and we can't get over the hump, and I can't play with this guy, and I can't win with this guy, so I've got, I'm going to have to go ahead and you know and, and kind of uh, you know take the take the easier route." Now, for the record, 
I've been one that has defended Durant's ability and his decision to do that. But when it comes to that breakup, I really, I really think that there, if there were no, if there were no, you know, uh, pressure out there, and if he were just able to just continue to play alongside, uh, alongside Russ, he probably would have done that. I don't think they would have won, specifically with the, with the coaching strategies that they, you know, that they had at the time, and even have at, the, at OKC even has at this time. Um, but I, I do think that they could have found harmony uh, playing together. Yeah, I, I think they might have too, but I, I I just honestly, I was thinking about it as we were getting ready for this one over the weekend. I don't remember feeling like Russ and Katie didn't like each other until he left. And and, and there was a lot there was a lot of emotion tied in, and I don't know that, I don't think they love each other. Like, I'm not on the same vibe. I don't think that relationship will ever be totally healed in large part because they're both petty. But I, I, I think that at the time, it was just, you know, Katie was not feeling it anymore, and he left, and that caused you know, more hurt than he probably intended it to cause. But I, I don't remember a moment like that. Shaq and Kobe is obviously the one where, like, it was written in the stars. We knew how that was going to go. Um, obviously, you being there and being part of that scene at the time, what was the, the Shaq and Kobe explosion like in comparison to all of these? I, I'm honestly, I'm all, I'm almost like disgusted to have to even discuss Shaq and Kobe in comparing it to some, a majority of these other breakups. Now, I'm, and I'm not being funny about that. Look, when you have Shaq and Kobe, you have easily two of the top ten, you know, arguably two of the top ten players of all time. Uh, the, you know, they'd been, and I'm not going to get into whether you know, maybe one is 11 or 12 or whatever. You know what I'm saying? They're they're in that range. They're in that conversation. You're not going to get into it, but you just you just clarified it. Anyway. Well, no, no, no. Mean no, meaning like I'm not going to argue back and forth. Of, oh, uh, is is one of them 11? You know, I'm saying you know what I mean. Um, you know, they 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 went to four finals together. Obviously, winning three at one point. Uh, their 16 and one postseason uh, record in, in the o, in o one was the most dominant. So this is a this was a, a duo with a ton of history, a ton of actual uh, success under their belts together. And more than anything, and and the funniest thing about this is because history will you know will will, will kind of retell itself over the years. Uh, L A at that time was a shack town. L.A. was a shack town. Of course, we loved and appreciated this young kid that seemingly could do everything out there on the court. But the magnanimous personality, uh, you know, the, the guy that we had been invested in, the guy that we you know looked at as, oh, no, that's the diesel. That's Shaq, man. So at that time, there were a lot. It, you know, L.A. was split. There were a lot of folks that were like, hey, if Shaq goes, you know, they, you know they, they, they're making a huge mistake. And then there were folks that you were know, kind of seeing it from the other side of things, like, hey, look, ultimately they're going to have to make a decision on on one of these guys or the other. So it's just a smart business decision to go with the younger guy. Um, it, I'll admit it, admittedly, and and this I'm sure surprised you when we first started, you know, we first started doing shows together. I was not a Kobe guy when he was younger. I was I was like, yo, that guy's incredible, but I was a Shaq guy. It took years of of coming around to turn it into the Kobe stand that you have you know, you have before you. But yeah, it, a lot of us were Shaq folks, so it, it was it's always interesting to kind of go back and look at how you know L.A. being such a Kobe you know Kobe town after the fact. Uh, if they if people are being honest, they were Shaq folks. But maybe it's just a change in the times too. But like you had Kobe, I don't know. I want to say snitching, ratting on, on Shaq's personal life. You had Shaq publicly, you know, r- rapping about Kobe. You had some serious dirt being thrown that I don't know today. Like if Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell really hate each other, would they do that? Or would they just leak things to their reporter of choice? Like would, would they hands clean kind of fight? But like Kobe and Shaq was just at another level 
where it was so publicly fought out. Josh, it isn't just that. This was going on back and forth while they were playing and winning together. Kobe's guy was Rick Buecher, if I'm not mistaken. Shaq's guy, you know, was somebody else. And they would, you know, they would go to, you know, they would play the game, you know, have success, go to practice. Phil would say, "Look, guys, keep it all in house. Stop talking." Even though Phil was always going to circle back and talk to his media, you know, his media guys of choice. <laughs> um, and then, literally ten minutes later. Kobe would have his, you know, have his folks, his contingency in the locker room and you know, d- dropping quotes like, yeah, you know, if everybody just was in shape and took it seriously and things of that nature. <laughs> and Shaq would have his consortium and it, it, and he would say things like, you know, if the big dog doesn't get fed, he doesn't guard the yard. Like this was stuff that was taking place in real time while they were actually still being successful. That's why this one's that one stands apart from all the others to me. Yeah, it does. And, and and again, every situation is different, but that's when I'm looking back. And I, I was looking at this Donovan Rudy thing. I'm like, it just doesn't feel as severe as any of these other situations, except for maybe the OKC situation, which you didn't really see. But like Shaq was it and Kobe were just on another level. Cleveland had this obvious moment. I, I'm just not buying it to the same extent. But, you know, I've been wrong before. We'll see. Um, let, let, let's move on a little bit. Let, let's go to the second part of our show this week. Let's talk some Tarantino movies. So um, <laughs> this isn't really timely. Like everything else has been timely with Tiger King and Ozark and, and onward in the prior episodes where we discussed movies and TV. But my man Jabari was just feeling some Tarantino. and We got into a bit of a once upon a time in Hollywood uh, debate on the timeline. So I figured let's do this. Um, I have the I asked fans, listeners, followers to rank Tarantino movies. So I have the list. Um, I did a bad thing that's going to bug some people and I included Almost Famous in with the 10 Tarantino movies because Almost Famous is an excellent movie if you haven't seen it. Um, written written by Tarantino, directed by Tony Scott, but it feels like a Tarantino movie. Now, Tarantino wasn't he, he just did the rewrite, correct? I thought he I thought he wrote the whole, no? Oh, I could be wrong. Okay. Let me look that up. Even though yeah, that is kind of cheating to put that one in there. It is, but I was like, I'm putting it in there because I watched that movie and I felt like it was his movie. So, I don't know. Um, Did you feel that because of all the women being de- uh, degraded and, and demeaned? And the dialogue and, and the, the violence. and yeah, But yes, yeah, I mean, um, what's interesting is for a guy with a very clear-cut style where a movie that's not even totally his movie um, feels like his movie... People are so all over the place. And I got to say, with like about 200 votes again, um, last week we, we ranked what, what was the Pixar movies that hit you in the feels the most. This week is just ranking the, the movies. There are people in almost every movie that have every one of his movies, there's a te- people who think it's a 10. Every one of his movies, there's people who think it's a 1. But like, you know, like, and, and from the same voters, like, it's crazy looking at it in the spreadsheet because like someone who loves Django absolutely hates Kill Bill and someone who loves Once Upon a Time in Hollywood absolutely hates Pulp Fiction someone who loves Jackie Brown absolutely hates Hateful Eight and it's 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 wild given how I don't know similar and feel a lot of his films are for it to be that all over the place that's my first thought 
That's an excellent point, and, and and part of me thinks that it could be a generational thing. It could be a matter of like when those movies came out and how it hits and how it impacts you, you know, directly. Because as we're going to get into, I did not like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood anywhere near as much as you did. And this is coming from a true Tarantino fan. When I say Tarantino fan, I love his work. I recognize the guy's probably crazy. Has a lot of stuff about him, his personal situation that I do not like, and even some of his work that I don't like. But yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just wasn't that great. To me yeah and i mean I, it's not my favorite in the series but we'll uh we'll, we'll we'll get to that so we'll each do our top fives i'll read the list uh the fan voted list up to five and then uh you go five i'll go five i'll tell the listeners five um we don't often do news and i mean i don't know how that will go in the future but do you ever just go to imdb and like search your favorite actors or people you're interested in like what are they doing the next couple years what can i look forward to do you ever get stuck doing that for a while absolutely you you know me i'll I'll dive down all types of rabbit holes and i do that on a regular basis like what's tarantino coming up with what's yo what's uncle zell of course that's denzel for the folks out there what's uncle zell up to what's yo sam jackson yo yo samuel jackson you know getting into yeah i definitely do that yeah and then you click a movie and it'll be like 2022 this movie's come out and then you'll see like oh gerard butler's also this movie what's this guy been up to what's he doing Click him and you just keep going. But anyways, I was doing Tarantino. There, there is a Django Zorro crossover coming in 2022. Have you seen this? I have not. I've got thoughts. The 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 um the description on IMDb is several years after the events of Django Unchained, Django meets Don Diego de la Vega, the famed Zorro, and agrees to become his bodyguard on a mission to free the local indigenous population from slavery. Which Oh my goodness. So I've done a ton of why does Zorro need a bodyguard is my first thought. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And then are we getting Antonio Banderas as number two? Okay, so uh, my quick answer to that is allow me to quote the great 19th and 20, or excuse me, 20th and 21st century uh, philosopher Rick James when I say cocaine is a hell of a drug <laughs> and two, Tarantino's clearly bored, man. Like, like, that, like that's the only thing that I gather from this. And it's fine. It may be entertaining. It may ultimately be a good product. But this is a, this is somebody that has kind of done everything that he, you know, clearly is set out to do, and is kind of circling back. Like, what else can I do? What what can I put out there that the studios will ultimately just finally say, like, no, man, what are you doing here? I'm kind of intrigued. I'm 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 kind of intrigued. So he's co-writing it with Jared Carmichael. Um, and they're like roughly basing it off a crossover comic book series of the same name. So I, I'm kind of intrigued. I hope we get Antonio Banderas. Um, was it The Mask of Zorro was his movie? It was a good movie with Anthony Hopkins and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah. I'm going to watch this if it comes out. Like I, I, I can't believe it. It feels like so insanely weird and odd. And wasn't the biggest thing for Tarantino was like, I'm doing 10 movies and then I'm done. And then I'm, I'm out. I'm doing nothing else. And now he's got a couple other projects. But yeah, anyway, hopefully that that uh, if that's the weirdest thing you heard today and you're intrigued by it too. Okay, so the audience in last place, 11, because remember I included Almost Famous, Death Proof. Okay. Um, second last place, which people just don't get it, man. Hate, hateful 8. Um comes in 10th Jackie Brown comes in 9th Kill Bill volume 2 
um, comes in eighth. Almost Famous comes in at seventh. Kill Bill number one comes in at six. So you can already know. You already know what the top five is, but you don't know what order it is. So once again, Death Proof 11, Hateful 8, 10, Jackie Brown 9, Kill Bill Volume 2, 8, Almost Famous number 7, Kill Bill Volume 1, number 6. So let's start with your number five, Jafari. Number five for me is Kill Bill Volume 2. Loved it. It you know it circled back, kind of filled in more of the gaps uh, that were left in Kill Bill 1, followed up on some of the storylines that you know that were you know left open in Kill Bill 1. Uh, I, I genuinely believe that Kill Bill 1 and 2 are a masterpiece. Here's the th- It's hard to pick and choose what you're going to be bothered by when you watch movies. Um, especially when you become so desensitized with movies and video games and everything else. But um, something about both Kill Bills, like, it, it bugs me, man. Like, I, 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 I had a hard time, like, not that every movie, you should enjoy every movie, not that that's the point, but I had a hard time, like, relaxing in either of them, which is, I guess, good filmmaking in some ways. But I, I just, I can't, I would never watch either again, if that makes sense, yeah. Was it? It was it just the pacing of it, or like the suspense, or like had you on edge, or what? What exactly? I, I was so into the story, but like the violence and like, you know, her being unconscious in the hospital room in the first one, and things that like it, it. It just like it was so gross that I was having a hard time vibing with it. You know, like I was so turned off by the. And every once in a while, that happens with a movie series, and like with all the violence in Tarantino, you think you'd be used to it, but just. How some of it was presented was 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 tough for me. No, I, I totally understand how that could be the case, and you're exactly right. You never know how a, a scene or a movie or you know even just a, a quick little glimpse of something will impact you. But the reason why I say it's interesting is is because because of the love that you have for Hateful Eight, Hateful Eight hit me like that. Like I was disgusted. Like actually disgusted by the end of that film. I recognize what it was saying. I, rec- I, I get, get, believe me, I get it in terms of filmmaking or whatnot. But some of that violence and some of that vulgarity for me, I was just like, okay, we get it, we get it. It is. It is interesting with with, with Tarantino, like where your line is enough is enough, and that's the same thing with the voting. Like it seems like everyone has a Tarantino movie where it's like it's too much, but it's not the same movie for everyone, which is kind of fascinating like i also hate pulp fiction which is like my hottest movie take ever and every time i throw it out on twitter i just get roasted but i can't stand it like the dialogue is so dull i feel like it's tarantino when he's in his sophomore season and he's in a sophomore slump and he's putting up a lot of shots and he's not hitting but you know he's being him and everybody vibes with that and i'm just like no he got better at this the dialogue was more pointed there were more uh, low, there's more low-key comedy it, it was hinting at things later in the plot like the dialogue is just so nonsensical for so much of Pulp Fiction I struggled to vibe with it but that that's you know by and large I mean it's in the top five I won't give it away but um, yeah so again it's just he's a really interesting filmmaker and in that people are so split on, on these similar movies no without a doubt I'll save my Pulp Fiction commentary for when it comes up uh, what, was okay. your, what was your number five so your number five was Kill Bill Volume 2. My number five was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And also, that was also the listeners. Number five was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Recency bias, but okay. Maybe. Um, it's not in your top five, then. No, it's not even in my, okay. it's not even in my honorable mentions. 
<laughs> so let's talk about Once a Time Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, what did you not like about it? It was fun in the sense of Brad Pitt is incredible and uh, Leo, obviously, both of them are incredible. Uh, but once again, it kind of it tapped into that same thing with Hateful Eight, especially down the stretch. And I don't want to give anything away, even though you know we always say we're, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, we're gonna you know spoilers are spoilers. If you're listening to a podcast and you know that they're gonna talk about certain movies, it is what it is. But I don't want to give away the big twist. But at you know down the stretch, some of the violence towards you know towards the women, and even compared to the guys in the same scene, it 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 for whatever reason it struck a nerve for me it look again uh yeah as i mentioned on the last episode i'm not a doctor and i'm not qualified to make any type of diagnosis but for the purposes of this podcast i will continue to do so quentin tarantino has some issues with women man quentin tarantino's has some serious issues with women i don't know what it is i don't know if it's a thing from his past or whatever the case may be but that movie in particular just got me yeah fair enough and i mean you can never tell anyone if they like i think it's a good thing if people see a movie and you're like, this is not right and doesn't sit well with you, like, go with that feeling. Um, I think my – the reason I have it five and not higher or lower is that, like, I feel like a few of the individual scenes in that movie are fantastic. And then, however, it's this slog. Like, was it four hours? I had to look it up again. Um, or it's two hours and 40 minutes. But it felt like – it felt like it just went forever. And you were like, that final scene is fantastic to me. And like, Brad Pitt just going off. <laughs> just, and then like the flamethrower, and it was so exciting. And it was like, boom. And, and, and it was great payoff, but it was, it was a struggle to get there in a lot of parts of the movie. I think Brad Pitt's character, you know, by and large, was the most interesting. And I don't know that we got enough on him. Like, did he kill his wife? I don't care. We've talked. We've talked about this before too. Like spoilers are gonna fly on the show. Like we're here to talk about it. So like, did he kill his wife? I don't know. Like I want to know more about his dog. I want to see him fight more people. The scene with Bruce Lee, however historically inaccurate, was a ton of fun. And um, his, his character. Let me jump in right there. That I forgot. I'm so happy you brought that up. That was the scene that I was like, okay, I'm out. Stop this. Stop this nonsense. Quentin Tarantino, you just wanted to have a Bruce Lee scene in there. You like there's no reason for this scene whatsoever. It's absolutely absurd. I'm done with you, Quentin. I, I, I physically said those words as I was watching it. Of course, I continued to watch it. But yeah, that scene was so ridiculous. It, to me, it's fun. And, and this is the thing. This is the thing. I get people who feel like that was a poor portrayal of Bruce Lee and they didn't like it and that wasn't who he was and it is historically inaccurate. I, I, I get all those gripes. However, I think it was a fantastic addition to the movie. I think it was a fantastic scene. I had fun. I'm also not an idiot and I can be like, oh, well, this is how Bruce Lee was portrayed in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written by kind of a sadistic individual who loves violence and drama. So that's who Bruce Lee was in real life. But there are people who are going to be like, wow, is Bruce Lee really like that? And and I get that that if you're like a, a diehard fan or a family member, that can be upsetting. But I'm just going to say from a, from a movie perspective, it was fun to watch this kind of like crazy character fight Bruce Lee and have that dialogue. It was fun in the movie. Fair enough. <laughs> and, and 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 the scene with Leo and his female actress co-partner shooting the TV show was excellent too. Yeah, no, like, this is the thing. Like you're not going to get it. Look, as much as I you know didn't love that movie, I don't think you can get a Quentin Tarantino film where you're just like this is objectively bad. Like I I I I dislike Django. 
uh, you know, spoiler alert, I disliked Django and I disliked Hateful Eight, but I didn't, I'm not going to say those were bad movies. They just weren't for me, you know, like, it, and, and I think it's okay to say that, like, you can be a, a fan of a director or writer, or, you know, creator or whatnot, but not necessarily say that, yeah, I love all of their projects. See, now I kind of want to know how old everyone is who voted on this, because our top fives are going to be very different. So to recap, number five, you have Kill Bill Volume 2. I have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Audience has Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number four, Jabari. It's Kill Bill Volume One. Like I said, I think it's a masterpiece. You know, when together, if you watch them, you know, if you watch them direct, you know, in order, uh, you know, that that's great. You know, if you have the five or six hours to do that, that's great watching. Um, for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, it's just a lot of fun for me. Uh, I didn't get caught up in some of the stuff that has been pointed out. And I was looking at some articles and I was like, okay, there's a bit of an appro- of appropriation there. And there's a bit of, uh, yeah, that's a questionable, uh, you know, some questionable dialogue. So at the time I did not recognize that. So I was allowed, you know, I allowed myself to just simply enjoy it. So those movies still stand out for me. Fair enough. I mean, I kind of said my piece on Bill, Bill with volume two, but same idea. Um, Number four for me, I had Django. Um, it's interesting you don't like Django. I, I I love Django. I thought it was, I thought it was his least um, filler movie. I felt like Django was the sum of its parts fit the best of his movies. Like I, there wasn't a lot of time spent with things that weren't important to the overall plot, which I find in a lot of the movie, right up until the end when Quentin Tarantino adds himself in and there's like an extra act for really no reason. So minus that last 20 minutes, I think it does a really good job utilizing the time on screen. I, I don't know what that narcissism narcissism was at the end there where you had to have that last moment, but um, that extra 20 minutes was, was brutal. But I think, you know, Django really, really was fun. And... Um, the the performances from Jamie Foxx, from Christoph Waltz, from Leonardo DiCaprio are also memorable. Uh, what, what's your beef with it? Yo, here's one for you. Can you tell me what those last twenty minutes were? Those last twenty minutes? Where yeah, where where? I did not finish watching it. I said I'm done, and about an hour in. Yeah. So after Leo gets caught, um, and Jamie Foxx kind of gets like. Cap- captured he's getting dragged away and like tarantino's like a i can't remember if he's a slaver or just like a bandit and outlaw whatever he is he's got jamie fox and he like breaks out he kills tarantino and everybody else heads back to the house then then finishes the job basically gets his girl um so the reason why i asked that question is because i i, I already knew what he did it you know you one of the reasons why he did it uh but when you described his character i said oh so i'm guessing his character was very foul-mouthed and used the n-word a lot you know, I, it's, it's probably that I'm white that I don't remember if if it did, you know, but probably. I don't know. I have to watch it again now. But uh, I bring the but, point up for listeners, you know, sake out there. I'm, I'm not, you know, the individual that's like, oh, man, in art, you can't do that. That's not what this is. You know, f- you know whatever. You want to say whatever you want in your own damn movie, say it. But if you go and you pay attention to Quentin Tarantino movies, especially even the history and the making of them and kind of his uh, decision making in terms of adding characters or like characters or uh, rounding off quick characters that he specifically has for himself. Uh, one thing, you know, there, there are several different you know, uh, things that you, you'll always see. You'll always see uh, foot reference or you know, several feet references. Uh, you'll always see him. <laughs> You'll always see him playing an obscure character that's seeming that's seemingly a throw-in guy, and they always use the N-word, which is always interesting to me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and the audience's number four was Reservoir Dogs. So 
Is that still coming for you? No, Reservoir Dogs is my honorable mention. Okay, well, it, it's it's coming for me, so we'll, we'll discuss it when, when we get to it. So number four for you, Kill Bill Volume 1. Number four for me, Django Unchained. Number four for the listeners, um, Reservoir Dogs. Number three. Number three for me is True Romance, and I was glad to see that you put you know the movies in there that he may not have directed, but he you know but he definitely wrote the script. I was really happy to see you put that in there because True Romance, while it's incredibly violent and incredibly vulgar and just absurd, you know, you, 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 to a lot of different levels, it's kind of the perfect like late eighties or, or excuse me like you know nineties action movie uh, where the, you know it 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 doesn't you know, the violence doesn't even make sense. It's so much. But they, they, they have enough you know, quality you know, performances and quality writing and quality storytelling in there to where it all kind of like you know, adds together and, and, and makes a great pie. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to sorry. I, I don't know why I said almost famous earlier in this podcast. True romance is what I was talking about at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he wrote this movie. It feels like his movie. It's a great movie. It's not in my top five, but it was my number six. It was my honorable mention. And like I love Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette. Um, and man, the the cast in this movie is just unreal. Like Christopher Walken, Brad Pitt, Gary Oldman, Samuel Jackson, Dennis Hopper, Michael Michael Rappaport being in this movie. I watched this only like two or three years ago too. So when he showed up, I was like, <laughs> James Gandolfini. Yeah, it, it's a great movie. James Gandolfini before The Sopranos when he was still at his best. Ooh, hot take. Oh no 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 yeah. I, I, no no meaning like he was at his like he was he was on the rise. I'm not. Oh, I thought you were saying he wasn't at his best in the Sopranos. Oh man, no that that that's the seminal character, man. Like that like that that's the character that they that they're currently writing additional shows moving forward thirty years later, twenty years later, uh, based on the anti-hero. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, so your number three was. Almost famous. My number three is a uh, Inglorious Bastards. My just just to be clear, my number three was True Romance. You said Almost Famous again, so I'm going to tell you the truth. I didn't want to bust you out earlier when you said Almost Famous. I was like, did he write Almost Famous? I thought that was Cameron Crowe. I don't even know what Almost Famous is. I keep talking about it's Cam. It's it's Cameron Crowe's biopic where it's you know where. <laughs> I, I, it, it, I'm looking it up right now. I don't even think I've seen this movie. I was sitting there like, maybe I just didn't know this. So, you know what? I don't want to sound like an idiot. That's why I asked, like, did he rewrite it? No, no. That, that's a completely different feel altogether. So for the listeners out there that you know undoubtedly are laughing hysterically at both of us uh, for being idiots here, uh, no, we meant true romance, not almost famous. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't even know why almost famous. I, I don't think I've seen this movie. Anyway, yes, I mean... True Romance, not Almost Famous. I'm going to scratch that out of my notes. I had it right in the form that people filled out, so I don't know how we got here. But Okay, so your number three was True Romance. My number three is Inglorious Bastards, and the audience number three is also Inglorious Bastards. My number two, if you're waiting for that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. we we got, we got to talk about Inglorious Bastards for a minute. Oh, <laughs> Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, that one. Does it make your list? Uh, no, it didn't. It's it's in my honorable mention as well. We have we have totally different lists. I know, but that's what's actually kind of great about entertainment, and in particular Tarantino. You you, you yeah. hit it on the head when you said like you know those that love you know a certain fi- you know a certain set of five will hate the other five, and vice versa. Yeah. The death of Diane Kruger in this one did bother me, but um, and to your point that there's always something over the top with a woman getting getting killed, hurt, etc. But um, I thought this was a great movie on a whole. I thought the storyline was unique. I had fun with it. Again, Christoph Waltz just steals the show. You, you, that that's what it is for me. It's the performances. Like the movie was like, okay, it's fun. You know, it's it, it's fine enough, but the performances really stand out. Um, 
uh, you know, Christoph Waltz, Diane Kruger, um, who's the guy? It was Eli Roth, uh, the dude that played, uh, was he the dude that played the bear? Yeah. Yeah. Like, all, all of those performances were incredible. Brad Pitt was incredible in it. Um, so it could have very easily uh, been in my top five, but the trouble is I've got, a, you know, a two volume one that's taken up, you know, the bottom, you know, the bottom end of it. What's, what's, what's the deal with, why is it so much easier to like play a great villain or supporting actor? Like, why is it so hard to, in any of the Tarantino movies is the main character, the most interesting character? Why? I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe it's just a matter of yeah, that. That's just not the way that he thinks. Like he thinks about things as like ensemble casts, as opposed to focusing in on one main person or or, or or a couple a couple main people. With with the exception of one of the movies that I you know that I have coming up, um, you know, if you look at a lot of his movies, they they really are that. They're you know Robert Altman style ensemble casts where you know you, you know you may be a big name and come in for a split second. You may be a small name. You'll do incredible things on the screen or 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 anywhere in between it's actually one of the things that i can appreciate most about his films fair enough okay number two number two for me is actually pulp fiction now i went back and forth on this one uh because i you know i've i've commonly placed it as my number one tarantino film um unfortunately maybe i'm being poisoned by you uh no no no. i went no i went back and forth on this one because it's definitely in my top two and and you know what you know some days it's not two and some days it is uh for the sake of today's conversation it is i understand where you're coming from in terms of uh it didn't hit for you but let me take you let me paint the picture a little bit differently for you what year were you born i'm not asking this being being a dick i'm asking you were born in 92 the movie came out in 94 so for me in 1994, uh, you know, I think I saw it probably 95. You know, I'm 15, 16 years old. You know what I mean? I'm living in that exact world and I'm experiencing all of those things. And I, I know what the level of entertainment is at that stage. It wasn't great. Now, like, like quite frankly, if you go back and, you know, diehard movie you know, watchers and, and movie appreciators, film appreciators are going to hate this. If you go back and look, man, a lot of, you know, like there's a lot of black and white movies where I'm like, okay, I get it. Like they're classics, but they're, they're not like all that entertaining. It's kind of like if you go back and watch 50s NBA basketball or 50s you know, basketball, while yes, it's great and it's fun. And for that time, it was incredible, but it just doesn't compare to what we're seeing at this stage. So for Pulp Fiction, for me, I recognize it's a time and place. It's like a time capsule for those of us that were you know coming of age or of age at that time so for you i get why that would you know why that wouldn't hit quite as much yeah and i mean i guess that leads into another discussion which i mean we can have another time more openly but how much does rewatch value and like timelessness factor into a movie like i mean you're speaking on nostalgia a little bit which is obviously a huge part of like the viewing experience but like I don't know, Pulp Fiction, I, di- I didn't care about any of the characters. I've already talked about the dialogue. There's not a lot of rewatch value for me without, and, and like you citing nostalgia rather than like, I don't know, the brilliance of the dialogue or like how, you know, invested you are in the arc of whoever. It, it tells me something about the movie and, and like, you. it's subjective. It's not like sports. We can't really put a number on it. You can't, but I guess maybe I value... Uh, I don't know. Re, re, I guess maybe I do. I value rewatchability more. Like, do I do I want to watch this movie again? Do I enjoy it? I don't know. The thing is, and, and I hear you, but it should tell you what my understanding or my appreciation for the movie is, not the movie. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's other people that would that would point to uh, the fact that it was a you know come from behind a comeback performance from John Travolta because for perspective, John Travolta, you know, John Travolta that you grew up with was a star. John Travolta that I grew up with was, uh, you know, yeah, okay, that was that guy from Saturday Night Fever or whatever, or Grease or whatever. But yeah, what has he done lately? This was his rebirth. This absolutely was his rebirth. Uh, you know, uh, Sam Jackson. We'd seen him in all types of things. He'd been in just about every single black movie that existed from 1985 and. On. So we knew all about him. The you know the the, the the you know the 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 masses didn't necessarily weren't necessarily connecting with him. So like it was that type of outbreak movie for him. I can I can break down that side of it for you too. But it's just easier for me to say I love it and uh, I <laughs> I love certain scenes. You know what I mean? It, it's just easier to say it like that. But there are definite there are definite reasons why that is that will remain a classic movie for all time. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, did can we still say that John Travolta had a comeback? Oh, absolutely. Because after that, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, like what? Like when you look at his his filmography after Pulp Fiction, it's you don't recognize how big Face Off was at the time. Face Off was ah. Face Off was. I know it's. I know it's crap. That's fine. That's totally fine. We're getting off track, but like Face Off is so bad. Yes, it but, is. Yes, it is. But but it's not like it, it's not like Con Air. Like Con Air is bad. Good. Face Off is not bad. Good to me. Like Face Off was like painful, and and long. It was so long. It's terrible. But at that time, that was huge. That was like, oh, man, John Travolta. You're like, trust me. I'm telling you. This is one of those where it's like, you know, like when it's annoying that your dad so just keeps on saying, trust me. And I'm not saying I'm your dad. I'm not LeBron in you. Uh, but, you, you know, like when you, when your dad says, like, just trust me. Believe. Believe. But these, these are the action movies I also grew up with, too, because my dad loved all of these movies. And like face off, just I, I don't know, it's just not good. Like I, I just I cannot get into Con Air, I still I still watch Con Air and I'm like, man, this is this movie bangs. You know, like but but face it just didn't do it for you. I got you. Yeah. Um okay, so your number two was um Pulp Fiction and not almost famous. <laughs> Pulp Fiction. And mine's Reservoir Dogs. I love Reservoir Dogs. I love that movie. And and it's funny because like my brother always harps on me. Because I get on the whole, I hate Pulp Fiction because of the pointless dialogue. My brother is always like, the scene at the diner is the most pointless scene in any movie ever. And he hates it. And I'm like, I can't really disagree. Like, you don't need any of it. You, you need like one minute to know they're all, you know, in this together. You don't really need anything else at the diner. And it's like a 15 minute scene. But I love that scene. I love that movie. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's great. And... Even watching it, like I bet I know why you'd love that scene. Why? I bet there's a part of you, there's a part, there's an inner scumbag in you that liked, <laughs> that liked when he said, "I don't tip." No, no. I worked the service industry for years and years and years, and it rubs me the wrong way. But maybe, maybe it's like the Dane Cook comedy bit, where like part of me always wants to be in a heist. Like I want to have the heist brunch, you know. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, you know what? I give your brother credit because, like, let's be, if we're being honest, the commentary and, and the dialogue in that movie is not even on par with Pulp Fiction. It just isn't. 
Like, like he, he, he continued to get better over the years, and there's a reason why I understand what, you know, what you're talking about about the dialogue in Pulp Fiction. But if we're gonna, if, if that's going to be one of your chief uh, criticisms, then you have to, you have to take it on the nose for that. Because uh, Reservoir Dogs, while I love it, and I'll watch it right now. You know, we, you know, which by the way, down the road, we should do some, you know, we should do, uh, or at least gauge to see whether uh, any of the listeners would want to do uh, some rewatches, you know, and 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 broadcast right alongside of us. Uh, but it's just not great in terms of the dialogue. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, and, and again, it's one of those things where, like, with his movies, some bang for you and some don't. But I, I just, it didn't didn't really dull the film for me in the way that it did with Pulp Fiction. Maybe, like, it's that it's one cohesive story still. It's still these characters all the way through. Whereas, like, Pulp Fiction kind of does all the different arcs. But, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's why. That's the, only, that's the only defense I can muster. And um, number two for the audience was Django. Okay, so you're number one. Or sorry, I'll recap. You're number two, Pulp Fiction. My number two, Reservoir Dogs. Number two for the audience, Django Unchained. Number one. So my number one, I think, was in the, toward the bottom for the audience. And I don't think I've ever heard you discuss this movie, so it's probably not going to rank up there for you. But it's, pro- it, for my opinion, it's his best movie, actual movie. Uh, it's Jackie Brown. Um, now, admittedly, as a child, you know, as a child of the late 70s and 80s, uh, a, a, th- a throwback, you know, sort of nod to black exploitation movies, not a reenactment of it, but a nod to the black exploitation movies that I, that I came up on. I appreciated it from the soundtrack to the vibe of the entire movie to the performances that you get from, you know, once again, an ensemble cast of Samuel Jackson, Bridget Fonda, Robert De Niro, um, Pam Greer, Chris Tucker. You know, it literally goes on and on. Uh, for me, this, you know, it's a heist movie. It's it's got it's got the element of being cool. It's got the element. You know, R.I.P. Robert Forster's in that as well. Like like really, it's kind of got everything for me. It's got you know it's got the heist. It's got the comedy. It's got the you know the violence. Uh, and, and like I said, it's 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 kind of tied together perfectly for me. It's a great cast. And even looking at this from just like prepping for the show, I probably haven't seen this movie in ten years. Like I was probably fifteen or sixteen when I watched this movie. I, I just don't remember it enough i think i need to watch it again like it wasn't memorable to me at the time um but i I probably need to watch it again i had it at seven or eight so i wasn't it i had a slightly higher than the audience but um yeah i I remember being like an okay movie but that's pretty much all i remember about it so i need to give it another look but interesting like your endorsement of it will probably get me to watch it over the next month for sure get a get a get a rewatch in there my number one's hateful eight i don't know if this this like so, so I was looking at this. There is, there were of the two hundred and something voters, there were eleven other people who thought Hateful Eight was a ten out of ten. I didn't give it a ten. I didn't give any of these a ten out of ten. To be honest, I don't. I don't think Quentin Tarantino has a ten out of ten movie. But um, because I'm tough, right? Like I'm tough. I, I don't think anyone should get a ten out of ten movie unless it's that great. But what would you consider a ten out of ten? Just for perspective. Uh, Hell or High Water. Okay. Would be a ten out of ten. Jerry Maguire would be a ten out of ten. Interesting. Okay. And as long as you I'm don't really, say Forrest Gump or something like that, I'm I'm with you. No, I'd really have to think on the rest of them. But yeah, I, I think I think I gave Hateful Eight and um, Reservoir Eights, and that's the highest I gave. Oh, you are a tough critic. Okay. Yeah. But I, I I do really enjoy Hateful Eight. You know, like if we were doing out of the hundred scale, I wanted to do that, but the Google form, I wasn't going to be like, choose out of a hundred. Like it's just a, 
it's tacky, but like I don't know, Hateful Eight probably like an eighty-two or eighty-three out of hundred. It, it it's a really enjoyable movie for me. I like my favorite genre is the thriller, um, murder mystery type vibe. I like that it's working up to it. I I felt for whatever reason this movie versus some of the others, like I felt like this constant pull, like it's gonna pop off, it's gonna pop off. When's it gonna pop off? And it is a little slow, and then the the dialogue does get carried away, and it is extremely vulgar. But again, you know, when Chen and Tatum start shooting up from under the floorboards and it, and it really goes nuts, it goes nuts. So um, I, I, I like Hatefully. Yeah, and, and, and this is definitely one where I can totally admit, I, I think it's just a matter of when you catch movies, you know, where you are in life. And, you know, just, you know, and even sometimes the, the vibe and the mood that you're in when you first when you first watch something. I don't know about you, but that can really impact me, whether it's a TV show or a movie or anything. There have been plenty of like really great you know, bodies of work that I'm like, yeah, no, I just have no desire to watch it. And then if I circle back. Perfect example, Mr. Robot. Shout out to our guy, uh, uh, Justin Rowan. He was the one that, that that turned me around on that one because everybody kept talking about it. And I was like, eh, okay, I, I see. But then once I got through it, I said, okay, yes, I, I, I recognize that I just wasn't in the right place when I watched that the first time. So Hateful Eight for me, I've only watched it one time and I and, and I will recognize it. Maybe I need to go back and take a look. Yeah, and I, there, there is something to that. I think I'm kind of the opposite. Like, I think I'm kind of a dick. Um, I don't know about an inner scumbag, but I think I'm kind of a dick. And when people are like, this movie's so great, this movie's so great, I rarely like it as much as the people when they, when they say that. I'm often left being like, I, I just, at least I'm mature enough to be like, maybe I don't get it. Maybe this movie wasn't made for me. Movies are subjective. You know, at least I'm mature enough to do that. But I often, I often find myself being like, I don't get why this is this hyped. And um, I think I'm almost the opposite. We're opposed to like, you know, you were saying Justin um, kind of swayed you on, on Mr. Robot and you went back and watched it. I'm kind of like the opposite where sometimes where I hear nothing about something, um, I hear nothing about a movie and then I watch that movie and it just blows me away because there's no expectations. And, and those movies kind of maybe I almost um, overrate those ones because I get into it and I'm like, wow. No, how are people not talking about this? Maybe I get that hipster thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? I was just, I swear to you, I was just thinking, this is like NBA Twitter. This yeah. is one million percent like MC NBA Twitter. Why is nobody talking about Jokic? He's the greatest. You guys are the biggest idiots because you don't love Jokic. It's the same type of idea. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And and on that note, have you ever seen Hunt for the Wilder People? No, I have not. It, uh, Taika Waititi wrote it, and uh, I forget his name. The Jurassic Park. Um, Sam, Sam Neil. Okay, he he fosters this kid, and it's really the random note at the end of the show here. He fosters this kid. Him and his wife taking this kid. He doesn't want the kid at all. He's a real like grumpy, curmudgeon asshole type guy. But his wife wants this kid. His wife dies shortly after, and they try to take the kid back. He's gonna give the kid back. So the kid runs away, and it's shot in like New Zealand, and it's just fantastic, man. It's just a fantastic movie, and uh, everyone should watch it. And I don't even remember if I found it on Netflix or where randomly one night, but awesome, awesome movie. I had heard nothing about until I watched it. Everybody should watch that movie. I will definitely check it out. I appreciate it. Okay, so to wrap, <laughs> to wrap as we've got off topic, uh, the number one for you was Jackie Brown. For me, it was Hateful Eight. And for the audience, it was Pulp Fiction, which I don't think is a big surprise. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's not that big of a shock. If we're being honest, while I will cape for Pulp Fiction from here to tomorrow, 
whenever we're doing you know things of this nature and we you know, and we're you know kind of polling the audience, we have to keep in mind that anytime like the biggest name of something, you know that that's usually going to stand out. So like there, there are probably people that may have the same opinion about Pulp Fiction as you do, but they're like, oh well, everybody loves that movie, so let, yeah, it's this. I, I, I actually do think that that does happen at times when it comes to voting. So just before I wrap us up here, uh, do you want to give a couple shouts out? Yeah, you know what? Let's. I specifically want to shout out a couple of our folks that have you know not only you know, stuck with us you know during a, you know, a time between shows, but also continue to drive the conversation. So I appreciate this time. Uh, shout out to our guy Juan. I think uh, he also recently participated in our all-time redraft. Uh, but at number one, I want to shout out to our guy at Pardon the Logic, at Danny W. And to my homegirl, Tanisha, or at Tingleton, excuse, T. Singleton says, all of them are great follows on Twitter. And all of them will, you know, like I said, they'll, can, they'll, keep, they'll keep the conversation going for sure. So we appreciate, we appreciate your interactions. We appreciate how you guys uh, continue to drive the conversation. And, you know, we hope that you're listening to and enjoying the show. Yeah, and on that note, we're going we're gonna to wrap up. Uh, please do keep, keep engaging with us. Like, one, Jabari and I love it. We're on social media all the time. Um, and, and two, this is what the show, like the discourse part of the show isn't just Jabari and I facing off, you know, shouts to the art from Blue Wire. Um, but this is this is about all everybody getting involved. And we want to hear what you have to say about these movies. And we want to rank things and have opinions. And it's, it's more fun if we get, you know, a few hundred, few, few thousand people voting on every topic every week and helping us rank things and providing perspective that more than two people can. You know, I, I mean, I genuinely, I'm not being facetious. I think, you know, I've proven with, my social media usage that I really want to hear from people and, and that's half the fun of doing this. And I think Jabari strongly agrees as well. Um, we are going to wrap up. This was Dunks and Discourse episode 3. You can find Jabari on Twitter at Jabari Davis NBA. You can find me on Twitter at Josh Everly. Shouts as always to Blue Wire Pods at Blue Wire Pods for giving us the platform and we will catch you every Monday and every Thursday is going to be our drop day. So we will record Sunday and Wednesday, Monday and Thursday in your Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Pods, wherever you get your pods, we'll be there.